Well, you sing a great worship song like that. You say, I want to remind myself that I'm a child of God. How do you do that in the face of circumstances that may elicit fear or panic? Theologians and contemplatives for years have talked about what they described as the dark night of your soul. It's that moment in life, that season in life where maybe friends betray you, enemies seem to be prospering, when the plans you had and what you thought was God's will begins to go awry. How will you handle, how should we handle the dark night of our soul? In today's passage, Jesus is going to show us exactly that. If you remember where we've been, it was 9 p.m. last week when Jesus was praying in the garden with his disciples. They got done praying together, and now, after a couple hours of prayers and interactions, it's now around midnight. The moon is lit, because it's Passover, full moon. Judas and the soldiers are about to come in at midnight to apprehend Jesus. And Jesus is not only going to teach, but model how to handle the dark night of his soul. Because as the soldiers come to crucify him and to take him away, the disciples are ready to defend him. And he will say, our key verse for today, permit even this. Permit me to be taken. Permit me to be crucified. Permit me to... To go into a situation that you think there's no possible way this could be God's will. Permit even this. Jesus says, I'm going to trust that my heavenly father, even the dark night of my soul, knows best. That he's got a greater perspective. That when he tells me to go places that are dangerous, it's because he knows something I don't. When, when I tell you not to do what you want to do, I want you to trust that I know something you don't. In fact, about a couple months ago, there's an article down in Florida. Florida man had taken his family to the beach. When they got to the beach, of course, they've been looking forward to this. The kids jump out and they immediately start running into the ocean. As they do, he got out his drone. And he's flying his drone around wanting to get some footage of the kids playing in the water. So he's got this great view of the kids and they're in the water. And all of a sudden, they're doing what they came to do. They intuitively wanted to do. It's a beautiful day. It's warm water. Let's run out into the water. He yells, stop, stop, stop. Don't do that. Come back. What in the world would dad be talking about? Why would dad not want us to go out into perfectly good water on a perfectly good day? Well, from the vantage point of his drone, he could actually see that they were about to run right into a shark 20 feet into the water, 30 feet in the water in front of them. And he says, I want you to trust me. Get back here. I want you to trust me. Don't go in there. And there's some ways Jesus is going to turn to his disciples when they're ready to pull swords and run into the situation and say, no, 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 no. I want you to permit me to go into the shark and filled water, but I want you to hold back. This is God's will for me at this time in this place. So when it comes to surrendering to God's will, we often don't want to surrender to his will, especially if it doesn't feel like what we want it to be. So instead, we, we have two approaches to not surrendering to God's will. The first one is going to be Judas's kiss. We try and corner God into doing our will our way. The other way is Peter's sword. We try and convince God not to do his will his way. But both are actually a lack of trust and surrender in our Heavenly Father. 
So let's look at that first way together. The first way comes from Judas. That Judas is going to try and corner God into doing his will his way. Now I'm going to build the case this morning that Judas was not just greedy. He was actually trying to force Jesus to be the Messiah he wanted him to be. He, he wanted him to be a conquering Messiah that conquered the Romans. He wanted him to conquer the religious leaders. So he's orchestrated the circumstance so Jesus will finally kind of get on with it. Get on with it. Stop waiting. It's been three years. It's time for you to get on with it. So he's organized this moment where Jesus is going to have to be confronted with the, with the leaders of the day so Jesus will finally get on with being the Messiah he's supposed to be. That's the case I'm going to build for you. That this whole thing Judas has done is to corner Jesus so Jesus will have to finally be the conquering Messiah Judas wanted him to be. Luke twenty two forty seven begins and said, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he was, who was called Judas, he was one of the twelve, went before them to draw near to Jesus to kiss him. First question comes up. How many people have come to arrest Jesus tonight? If you've ever pictured it, is it six people? Maybe 20? I realize I got most of my images in my head from watching Jesus films over the years. I have no idea. But a multitude, Jesus fed a multitude, that's a lot of people. How many people have they have come to apprehend Jesus tonight? Luke's not real helpful, but John is. In John chapter 18, we get a lot of details as to what a multitude is. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops. Another translation says it a cohort. So this term, a detachment of troops, is a technical term, which means a one-tenth of a 6,000-person regiment. 600 soldiers have come to apprehend Jesus tonight in the garden. More than that, the officers from the chief priests... See, up in temple, Josephus tells, Josephus tells us, two million people come in and out of Jerusalem for Passover. And up at temple, they gotta keep order, so they have a security force. So these officers from the chief priests are the security officers that are meant to kept order up at temple. Could easily be low level 20 up to 100 officers. They don't have swords, they have clubs because they're not allowed to kill anybody. So you're gonna see alluded to the swords of the soldiers and the clubs of the chief um, officers. Then you have the chief priests uh, and Pharisees, leaders there. And later in Luke, he'll mention that there's elders and there were 70 governing elders. And this is like the most important thing going on. So 70 elders, 50 to 70 security officers, Pharisees, plus 600 soldiers have come into the garden to apprehend Jesus. And they come with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, now, would you be intimidated? Over Maybe a thousand people have come to apprehend you. Jesus walks up to them. Knowing all things that would come upon them, he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Now, if you read it, it says, I am he. But if you notice the word he is in italics, whenever you see the word he... Or, see, any word in the Bible that's in italics, that means the, the translators have added that word to make it more readable. But it wasn't in the original text. So actually, they show up and say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he looks at 600 to 1,000 people and says, I am. And when he had said, I am, they drew back and all, boom, 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 
boom, boom, boom, fell to the ground. With their torches, with their clubs, and with their swords. Now imagine that. They're starting a forest fire here. There's torches everywhere. 6,000 people. Unbelievable display of power from Jesus. With one word, the very name of God, spoken to Moses by God from the burning bush. He is now said to a thousand people coming to get him. I am. And they scatter. They flow. It's no wonder the soldiers and the disciples think, this is it. Judas must be thinking, this is going according to plan. He has knocked over the soldiers. It is revolution time. And then, Judas thinking he's cornered Jesus into finally doing what he's supposed to do. Jesus looks at Judas and says, Judas, are you betraying the son of man? You remember, we learned the Son of Man is a term used from the book of Daniel. There's a vision of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and this other God-man that rises on the clouds, the Son of Man, the God-man. He says, you really think, Judas, you're going to trick, you're going to corner the Son of Man, and you're going to betray him with a kiss? Now, we learned a couple things about this idea. Number one, Jesus was apparently not recognizable. You know, when you see a Jesus movie, it's like, it's Jesus with the big blue eyes, that Middle Eastern man with the blue eyes. But Isaiah 53 tells us there was nothing about his outward appearance that would draw us to Jesus. So he was pretty ordinary looking and normal looking. So much so that they were probably afraid, which is why they've sent so many people. They got to get the right guy. So Judas comes to kiss him because at any time in the middle, even with the moon out, one of the other disciples could say, I'm Andrew, I'm Jesus. Well, they snuck Jesus out the back. So they kissed Jesus to make sure they get the right person. And number one, remember what we learned a few weeks ago is that Satan has inhabited Judas. So what we're going to learn here is how Satan works in trying to have you not have God do his will his way, but try and corner God into doing his will your way. It's my will. Have you ever tried to corner God into doing your will your way? There's lots of ways we do it. Sometimes we do it through victimhood. God, after everything you put me through, it's been going on for so long. I've had to put up with this and put up with that and put up with that. God, you owe me because everything I have to put up with. You need to make my life more comfortable. You need to give my will my way because you owe me because everything I've put up with. Others of us take a different approach. We take the, I've worked so hard, you owe me God. God, after all the prayer I've done, after all the ways I've served you, after all the ways I've obeyed you, God, look at the, my resume of all the wonderful things I've done. God, you, you owe me my will my way. Others of us go looking for the newest Christian book so that we can find the new formula to get God to do our will our way. All right, God, we've got you surrounded. We have you surrounded by scripture. You got to come out now and do exactly what we want, right? And we just go through formula after formula after formula until we get God to do what we want. Or, or maybe you've tried reverse psychology on God to corner him. Yeah, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to go anywhere, serve in any place, except Hawaii, Lord. Don't send me to Hawaii. I just, I don't think I could serve you there, right? Rever- yeah. You're going to use reverse psychology, victimhood, God owes me. To corner God into doing your will. And I'm telling you, you cannot outpoker the Son of God. Now, what we also learn here is that 
how Judas is working toward Jesus is how Satan works. Because remember, Satan has inhabited him. So Satan does two things. Number one, Satan always comes to you like a kissing friend. Satan doesn't show up in your life and say, I am Diablo, I've come for your soul. No, that's not what he does. Satan comes as a kissing friend. Hey, 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 wow, you've been through a lot. Wow, I'm not sure God can be trusted. Come here. Wow. In fact, the book of Corinthians tells us exactly that. This is Satan's method. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers. They transform themselves into apostles of Christ. They pretend to be something they're not. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. See, what what Satan will do is come into your life and say, Oh, no, 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 you're not being fearful. You're being careful. Yeah, yeah. And, And you should be careful. You're not consumed with panic and fear, trying to control things only God can control. You're, you're being careful. And he, he gets what the Bible calls a foothold by you holding on to fear. And that becomes a foothold that Satan can use in your life. But he did that through kissing you into it. I was like, you're not a worrier. You're just concerned about others. You're not putting yourself in the place of God, trying to control people and circumstances. No, no, no. You just have a big heart. Well, sure, you've been very, very forgiving, but you don't need to forgive this person. This person really hurt you multiple times. And all of these are footholds Satan uses to get into your life, but he does it in a very careful, very kind, very kissing kind of way. The second thing we learn in this passage is that Satan always takes you farther than you had planned on going. Like I said, I do not think, and the text is going to tell us, Judas had no intention of having Jesus killed. He didn't intend to go that far. He just intended to create a confrontation where Jesus would finally have to step up and be the Messiah he always wanted to be. But Matthew tells us that Satan will always take you farther than you planned. See, when morning came, the chief priests and elders plotted against Jesus to put him to death. So when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned... Oh, I didn't think it would go this far, was remorseful. Oh, no. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver and said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. See, that's what happens when evil Satan begins to tempt you. You say, well, I'm willing to go this far. I'm willing to entertain such and such. You say, oh, no, 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 we're going all the way into the garden. Oh, no, no, we're going all the way to the edge. Oh, we're going all the way to the edge. And then when you think, oh, well, I'm on the edge of this, but at least I didn't go over, he'll, boom, he'll push you over. That's how temptation works. You stay longer than you thought you'd stay. You go farther than you thought you, you would go. That's how Satan works in our life. He worked in Jesus' life through Judas that way, and that's how he comes in our life. And here's what's so ironic. We don't permit God to do what God wants to do when he says, guys, trust me. Permit even this so we don't trust the one who died for us to permit even this but we do permit satan to do all kinds of crazy stuff that destroys our life why is it that when you're faced with difficulty what if god tells you to permit his will it's not something you want it's not the kind of messiah you want and it's something you can't imagine being good What about when God comes into your life and says, yeah, I need you to go through cancer. 
I don't want to go through cancer. I know. But permit even this. I heard the account of Jonathan. He wrote a book. The book is actually called The Other Side of Ego. It tells his story of going through throat cancer and how he had to permit even this. He came home one day and he sat down at the table. He's going to give the news to his wife and his daughter that he had a tumor about the size of a golf ball on his throat. He had his own morning show. He was an international correspondent, Southeast Asia. He also had his own morning show in Australia. He was a household name and he was scared to death that he wasn't going to be able to speak. When he told his daughter and his wife that he was in the late stages of throat cancer, his daughter pushed back the chair and said, I don't care if you live or die. I really don't. And she stormed off to her room. That evening, through silence and screams through the door, he just couldn't believe that someone he loved would say that to him. He laid in bed that night and he said, in the arrogance of my beliefs, I thought to myself, how could she not know how much I care for her or love her? How could she say that to me? He said, the longer I sat there, the more I realized I couldn't remember the last time I had held her protected her I couldn't remember the last time I said I love you or I'm proud of you and at that moment I realized that my cancer may be deeper than just my throat he had the lump removed he said I prayed to the God that I didn't believe in that it would have worked and I wouldn't have to go through chemo But I had to go through chemo. He said, I was terrified. This was the time I could have reached out to my wife and my daughter in a new way. But I just didn't know how to reach out to people and talk about my fears. So instead, I would finish chemo treatment. Instead of going home to an empty house with walls caving in, I found myself walking around downtown. And I saw this homeless man sitting on the street. Big sign that said, help. I thought, get a job. Help. I'm dying. You know who needs help here? I need help, not you. He purposely walked the other way to avoid him. The next week he came out of chemo and once again saw this homeless man. Decided not to go out of his way, so he just kept walking on by. And he had a dog. The man seemed kind enough and his dog came up and looked up at, at Jonathan and kind of tilted his head the way dogs do. I'm like, whoo? And just intuitively he said, well, what, what's your dog's name? What's his name? Homeless man said, well, he's a she and, and her name is Molly. And Molly doesn't go up to a lot of people. You must be a kind soul. What do you need? What do I need? A cynical journalistic mind kicked back in. This guy's got the dog in on the act in order to get money out of people. I don't need anything. They talked for a little bit and he didn't ask for money. Just a kind conversation. And again, he walked off. Came out of chemo. The next time, and found himself drawn to downtown. Thinking about the kindness of someone who'd been there, a conversation he had and said the loneliness of his own home, Sammy bought a sandwich. As he walked up to the homeless man, the homeless man was fiddling with some, some pills, so he helped him open the pills. They were for schizophrenia. He suddenly thought to himself, I'm sitting down next to a serial killer. He noticed his name was Douglas. He said, Douglas, I brought you a sandwich. 
handed Douglas a sandwich, and Douglas said, well, I'll only eat it if I don't eat it alone. Will you join me? So he sat down on the edge of the street in the downtown area with successful people moving back and forth. And they just had this great, kind, normal conversation. He said, for the first time in a long time, I didn't feel alone. We finished conversation, and uh, again, I went back to my business. And next time, again, finished a chemo treatment, I found myself again heading downtown. He was sitting there again. And he said, hey, come here, I got something for you. He pulled, reached into his pocket, he pulled out some chocolates. It's kind of cheap chocolates, but he knew they were expensive for Douglas. He said, I bought these for you. And Jonathan said, well, well thanks, friend. I, I'll only eat them if I don't eat them alone. So sit down and join me. As he did, he said, Douglas had tears in his eyes. He said, friend? Wow, I don't have any friends. And I certainly don't have important friends like you. As both of them got to be welled up with tears, I do what guys do sometimes. We get emotional. They kind of look the other direction and blink a lot. (laughs) And they shared this moment. He said, you know what? I spent my whole life trying to be successful. Be the people walking around, not sitting on the curb, avoiding people like Douglas. And I have never felt more like an MVP and someone important as I did that moment, that day, in that conversation. And I realized he wasn't the disabled one I was. And that encounter set me on a journey to become a a different type of husband and a different type of father to restore my relationship with my daughter and to become the very best version of what I could be. And if I had never gone through cancer, if I had never had to go through chemo, if I had been forced into this conversation, I probably never would have prayed and I never would have dealt with a real cancer, which was the ego in my own life. So when God asks you to permit even this and you try and said corner him into doing some other version of your will, your way, you're missing out on a heavenly father who knows more than you what you need and what he might want to bring out of you or fix that's in you. But I told you there were two ways that we resist God's will. The first way is, is Judas's kiss. The second way is Peter's sword. Peter's sword is, if we can't corner God into doing our will our way, we'll ah, pull the sword and at least convince God not to do his will his way. When those arose, those around him saw what was going to happen. Now, I believe this is, if you synchronize these, Jesus just said, I am. They fall down. And out of that, if you remember from last week, Jesus told his soldiers, his disciples, they better be packing. They got their, soul, their swords. They're like, is this the moment? Is this takeover Rome moment? They yank out their swords and they turn to Jesus and ask a question. Here's the question. Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Now they've asked a question. Jesus is going to answer their question. God, what's your will here? And between the, the moment they ask the question and the moment Jesus answers the question, we have a Leroy Jenkins moment. All of a sudden, wow! Out of nowhere, the disciples comes a big left-handed sword swinging. To which Jesus then answers the question and says, Permit even this. Put your swords away. 
permit this to happen. Let me be taken away. But between the moment they ask the question and he answers the question, we have a sword swinging moment of someone who didn't listen and didn't get in step with the kingdom. But who is this guy that got cut? Who is this guy that swung his sword? Luke doesn't tell us. But John does. John does. John wants you to know. Ha, ha, ha. We're not going to protect the innocent here. No, 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 no. It was Peter. Peter did it. Peter did it. Peter did it. Simon Peter did it. Now, Simon's name means one who listens. Huh. Now, notice the Jewish humor here. They've asked a question. The person who didn't listen... Just cut off someone else's ability to listen. And his name was Malchus. Okay, so what? Let's move on. Oh, why do they tell us the name of the guy? What does the word Malchus mean? It means the king or the kingdom. So the Jewish humor here is a guy whose name is listening doesn't listen. The man who doesn't listen stops other people from listening. And the man who's not in line with the kingdom just chopped off part of the kingdom. And he's not in line with the king. And yet into this moment we see exactly how God's will is going to unfold in a very unusual way. Because Jesus says, guys, permit even this Then Jesus, showing the kingdom, maybe everybody else is still kind of getting up from the I am moment, you know, oh, what happened? Oh, yeah, it was a torch. (laughs) Jesus sits down with the servant, reaches down, picks up his ear. (laughs) Come here. Places his ear back on, heals and restores it. And now we see this unusual upside-down kingdom. Because Jesus heals his enemies. He restores his enemies. And for those of you who remember Leviticus, oh, Chad, don't bring back Leviticus. It was six months of my life. So important. In Leviticus, we learned that if you're maimed, you're not allowed in temple worship. So this servant has not only lost his ear, he's lost access to the presence of God through the temple. And Jesus has restored his ability to come into the presence of God. And that's what the kingdom looks like. A God who heals, restores, and leads our enemies to a place that they can know his heavenly father. I don't know what God's going to tell you to permit, but it's going to sound crazy. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to experience that. Our exploring service today, I'm interviewing uh, my friend Shelly Lytle, one of our board members. She's going to describe 18 months ago how God put her through a a life-threatening circumstance that she got the flu, and it was the worst case of the flu. And I remember walking into the hospital room, and they gave me a mask. I've done a lot of hospital visits and not had a mask. And I thought they were protecting her from me. I'd find out later they were protecting me from her. That's how bad it was. She's going to describe how God worked in the midst of a horrible circumstance. And it's out of that circumstance that she had no ability to not permit. 
God would begin to do things in her life, begin to have people in her family pray who hadn't prayed in a long time, begin to see ways to, to work through fear in her own life, to see ways he'd been preparing her for that moment because the way she'd been running, which allowed her to survive when her lungs would have collapsed. You and I aren't smart enough to see the big picture. So whether it's pain or sickness or discomfort, sometimes we have to say, God, I don't know your will, but I'm going to just say, God, I'm going to permit even this because I trust you. And the reason you can trust him is because this is a a God-man, the son of man, who not only knows God's will, he commands God's will. He commands it. And what's so fascinating is, again, a thousand people showed up to pick you up. I'd be a little intimidated, not Jesus. It's confrontation time. Jesus said to the chief priests, to the captains of the temple, those are the security officers, and the elders, I told you there were 70 of them, who had come to him, not, oh, guys, please don't. Oh, my goodness, wow, I'm intimidated. It's like confrontation time. Have you come out as against a robber with your swords, talking to the soldiers, and your clubs, the officers? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me. In the daylight, in front of other people, where it had been legal. No. This is your hour. It's midnight. It's the power of darkness. Because you know what you're doing is unethical. It's wrong. It's a kangaroo court going on here. Wow. For a guy who's outnumbered a thousand to one or a thousand to twelve, that guy is commanding. He's fearless. He's bold. He's strong. He's not intimidated. I may not know, not always know God's will. I may be often frustrated at God's will. Those who have been praying for my wife, by the way, we went back in for another MRI and found out that her second surgery has still got swelling going on and the scar tissue from the second surgery is now strangling the same nerve and so we're doing some stuff to try and get the inflammation down. It's just so frustrating. I don't understand why it's gone on for two and a half years. I don't understand why there isn't relief. But what I do know is when I don't know God's will, I want to be close to a guy and stay close to a person and trust the person who commands God's will when I don't get it, when I don't understand it. I want to live out this verse. God, I'm trying to permit even this because I trust you. And the word permit's a very interesting word in the Greek. If you remember several weeks ago, months ago, really, in Luke, he said, permit the little children to come unto me. Translated in the King James, it's suffer the little children to come unto me. The word permit can mean suffer. Because when you permit God's will, you suffer your will. When you permit God's present preference, you suffer your own preference, which isn't that. When you give God the right to your life, you suffer or permit your rights not to play out the way you preferred. I want you to choose this week to follow the one who commands God's will with a simple attitude of, God, I'm going to permit even this. Maybe you need to confess that you haven't. Maybe you like Judas been trying to corner God in doing his, your will your way and say, God, no. I'm going to stop trying to talk you, convince you, victim you, prove to you how good I am. I'm going to live with the attitude of permit even this. Or maybe you like and pull out your sword. God, I'm going to force this to happen. I'm going to make this happen. You can't do what, what your will is. And maybe 
You say, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to follow the one who commands God's will by saying, I trust you. And I may have to suffer. I may have to sacrifice. I may have to permit some things I wouldn't prefer. But God, I am going to surrender to your expertise. That's not always bad. Sometimes God invites you into something you, you didn't know you would want. And you come in and you experience incredible growth and joy as you see God's will in powerful ways. I mean, one of the things I love about Horizons, we get to see exactly that. There's ways God calls us into his will, and there's a little sacrifice, but the joy far outweighs that. You know, this summer, many families didn't have meals because they're out of the school system. So inter-parish ministries came to many churches, but us specifically, and said, hey, we really need help. Could you guys provide some meals? And so, as a church, we provided so much food, inter-parish ministries sent us a note and said over 3,000 pounds of food came from Horizon. Provide for families in our community. That's God's will. And sure, yeah, we suffered. Right? We suffered instead of buying uh, an extra Starbucks, we bought groceries for somebody. Small suffering. But wow, it was part of God's will. We've got a funeral coming up in a few weeks. And many of you will sacrifice a little. A preference to go golfing that day or having lunch that day. You'll come in and serve families and people and friends you don't know with your time. Because you want to create a context where people feel loved and cared for as they mourn the loss of someone they care about. You're part of God's will. You're permitting yourself to be part of what he's doing in the community around us. Last week, the message was so good last week, I was taking notes on myself. That's how good it was last week. <laughs> we got a, uh, a note last week. And we get these a lot. But just an example of It'd be so much easier for us to do a one-service design, just do one service, do the same message all the time, one band. It'd be a lot cheaper. It'd be a lot more cost-effective. It would be just a lot easier. But we believe strongly that God's will is creating different experiences to grow people wherever they are. And I had notes like this about our exploring service. We're going through the book of Jeremiah from last week. And I had this note from somebody who was in the service at the equipping service last week. A word of encouragement to Pastor Chad and the staff. We're new to the area and have visited the equipping service several times. We are encouraged by the solid biblical preaching and the wonderful worship service. This past Sunday's sermon hit especially close to home as we have a dear friend in Wheaton, Illinois, who's in the hospital facing very serious surgery. He has been discouraged. I emailed the link to Sunday's sermon to his wife. She took it to the hospital for our friend and sent it to all their children. We received a note that evening telling us of the encouragement the message had on um, bringing them hope. And telling us that Lloyd is once again at peace. Thank you for your ministry. And thank you for sticking to the word. Now I assume when it says Lloyd's at peace. He didn't die from listening to my message. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping that he's at peace with the circumstances. You know part of the work we do serving every week. Greeting people. Making them feel welcome as they come in. Is because we believe that when you put God's word in front of people. It transforms lives. It transforms marriages. That's what we're about. And so when you give, when you serve, yes, there's going to be a sacrifice, but God's inviting you into his work. I've had several families in the last couple of weeks. I've talked what's going on with our construction, which began this week. They said, hey, I want to be part of that. And they brought gifts in and say, I want to be part of creating an app that will create tools so people can experience this at a broader level. I want to be part. Here's a financial gift. Just had one last night. Some folks came up to me and said, we've been praying about this. And my goodness, and they handed me this sacred, sacred gift. Was it a sacrifice? Yeah. Was it a little bit of suffering? Probably. 
I was so honored to see what God's doing in our midst. In fact, last week I walked down, heard some, some banging around going on as they're putting our, our room together for our technical room to run the video services. So just to show you there's some actual construction going on, I'll try and give you a few updates each week just to see, you know, this is the room that's going to have the control center. It's going to be able to put those uh, videos together for our online and our video archive. And ultimately it's going to be shown on our app, which is really under development, a really cool way too. So I don't know in what way God's calling you and what he's asking you to permit in your life, but don't miss out. Think of it this way. God comes to you and says, I got some hot water I want to put you in. You're like, I don't want to go in some hot water. You're like, no. 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 But here's what God knows. You find out what's in people when you put them in hot water. You find out what's inside people when you put them in hot water. And God says, I want you to trust me and permit even this. I'm going to dip you into some circumstances you may not like. And as I do that, there's going to some things that are going to come out of you that you didn't realize are deep in your heart. And you have to permit that cancer or permit that difficulty because I'm going to use it to begin to bring some things out that we need to deal with that are broken inside of you. Your cancer is more than just throat deep. There's other times I'm going to put you in some hot water and it's going to bring out some incredible examples of the fruit of my spirit. You're going to depend on me in ways you never have before. You're going to feel joy and peace and gentleness and self-control. But none of that's going to happen unless you trust me enough to say, God, permit even this. Let's trust the Heavenly Father who commands God's will. Father, thank you this morning for the reminder of your love. Thank you for the reminder of your will. Thank you for these powerful passages that drive us into your presence that we can live God-reliant lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. See you all next week.